Today I want to talk to you about a subject that I'm entitling, Change Your World. Change Your World. During this four-week journey, we're going to look at one of the most motivational, one of the most inspirational, one of the most captivating stories about an ordinary guy in all of the Bible. And this ordinary guy made an extraordinary difference in the world. His name is Nehemiah. And some of you have studied about Nehemiah before, but let me remind you what he is not. Nehemiah is not a pastor. He is not a, a priest. He is not a king. He is not a prophet. Nehemiah is not even a warrior. He's not even a skilled laborer. Nehemiah is an ordinary person who heard something that broke his heart. And when he heard something that broke his heart, it crushed his spirit to the point that he had to do something about it. Is there something in your life that just breaks your heart that you feel compelled to make a difference in? Um, something that crushes your spirit and breaks your heart? During this four-week journey uh, that we're going to be spending in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to learn some tools, some strategies, get, gain some understanding about how it really is possible through the mire and muck and problems and trials and tribulations and attacks and ongoing episodes that we struggle with in life that we truly can. And God is calling us to make a difference, to change our world. I'm going to ask, Kaida, would you help me? I need a, a one chair. Can you just unhook one chair and put it up here for me? Girl, I appreciate that very much. Nehemiah, let me tell you a little context. Nehemiah was a, yes, thank you, honey, I appreciate that. Nehemiah was a normal person. He had a job, and his job was that of being a cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Um, a cupbearer is kind of like a butler. Um, he had to be a person of great integrity, had to be a person uh, that was very, very trustworthy. Because the butler, the cupbearer in this case, was always near, um, always near the king. So if the king is having a confidential meeting, a private conversation, he's like, dude, I think we need to attack so-and-so, um, the, the cupbearer would have heard that conversation. And so the cupbearer had to be trustworthy enough not to repeat anything that the king was saying. He had to be a man full of integrity. He had to be loyal to the king. But there was one major duty on the job description of Nehemiah that he had to do. And the one major duty that he had to do was, was found in his title. He was the cup bearer. And simply put, I think you know what this means, but simply put, he was charged with trying all of the, the wine, the drink that the, cup was, or that the king was going to drink. And if Nehemiah got sick or died, then the king wasn't going to drink it. If I had the job of cup bearer, I would want an incredible health insurance plan. Anybody else know what I'm talking about, yes? I would want to make sure that my family is covered just in case this, the gig didn't go well. So this guy was an ordinary person. Uh, he had no status. You got to know this. For the four weeks we're going to be on this, he was nobody. He was an ordinary person. In fact, he, not only did he not have any status, he was in the role of a servant, a cupbearer, attending to the needs of the king. Well, one day, Nehemiah is having this ordinary day, just a normal, routine day like you probably have. I, I have most every day. And he hears a conversation that moves him to a place 
that Nehemiah had never been moved to before in his entire life. Let's, t- let's take a look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 2. Haniah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So there's this conversation. Let me help you understand. There's this conversation that was taking place between Nehemiah and a brother of his. And he says, hey, 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 what, tell me about our people. Tell me about our homeland. I mean, here I am a thousand miles away. Tell me about our homeland. Now, one of the reasons why Nehemiah is asking this question is because that about 140 years prior to this, in 586 B.C., which I realize the dates don't really matter to most people, but about 140 years prior to this, the Babylonians, uh, a group of people that were under the rule of an evil king that we've talked about before in the church, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. So the Babylonians, evil people, under the rule of an evil king, King Nebuchadnezzar, attacked the Jewish people and completely destroyed their city. Now we could gloss over that and go, well, all right, 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 move on. Um, We can't gloss over this. Um, How many of you remember a guy by the name of Solomon in the Bible? Solomon was David's son. He was a king, anointed king after his father David. Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived other than Jesus. And he was the richest person that ever lived. Scholars even today, both biblical scholars and secular scholars, look at his net worth in light of uh, the current economic culture and would say, hands down, richer than multiple of the richest men today in the world. Very, very wealthy. And he built a church. In fact, it was called Solomon's Temple. Kind of prideful, I think. But but anyway, he built Solomon's Temple. He built this, this glorifying church for God. Don't you think that the richest man in the world would have hired ADT to put in an incredible alarm system, right? To keep that thing safe at all times. <laughs> the pro- the prop- the- he put all the money into it. The problem was now in Nehemiah's time, that temple, that church had been burned to the ground. I mean, we're talking about the richest, most powerful king built this, probably left, he left a legacy, left the people in charge, left rules, let them know that you got to protect this at all costs. It's all gone. Their identity is gone. Think about um, paradise. Remember paradise, California, the fires that took place there a few years ago? Just wiped out. The difference was that was by a natural disaster. This was intentional and willful from the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, everything is gone. And now Nehemiah is asking, how's it going? What's happening? Um, I, I really want us to understand at the beginning, Nehemiah is fixing to have an encounter. Something's going to happen in his life that's going to alter the course of his entire future. The people respond, his brothers respond to him, we have no hope. We have no future. You see, not only did the evil Babylonians ruin the whole city, but they also took the Jewish people captive, brought them a thousand miles away and held them in bondage and captivity and slavery, abused them, pillaged, hurt them. I could go on with some incredible detail. 
It was, it was hell for them. And then, by God's mercy, they were released some hundred years, hundred plus years later. And about 50,000 Jewish people made their way back the thousand mile trek to go back to their homeland. And they got to their homeland and they said, with God's help, we will rebuild this city. With God's help, we will, we will rebuild the city that we love, our homeland, and we're gonna make it better. We're gonna make a better future for our families. The problem is, their vision got stalled. Have you ever had a vision before? And you're like, I know this is what's supposed to happen. And then it just never happens? Well, let's look at it this way. How many projects currently at your house do you have going? You, know, you have the greatest of intention that we're going to get this project complete, it's gonna be done. And you don't get it done. Um, how many personal projects, this could hurt somebody in here a little bit, so it might sting, get ready. How many personal projects of your own self have you said, okay, I'm inspired. I'm talk you're talking to your spouse, you're talking to somebody that you care about in your life, and they're speaking into your life, and it's painful, and it hurts, and you know you need to hear this, and you're like, okay, I got it. I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to be better, a better version of me. <laughs> and then it stalls out. How many times... How many times has that happened to you? It happened to the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people. They stalled out. They couldn't get it going. They found themselves at a complete dead end. And so when the brother says to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. In other words, the people that have been kidnapped and enslaved and abused, they survived that exile for how many decades? Now they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in the capital city, but now they're frustrated, they're in disgrace and they're in trouble. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, with no wall, with no gates, there is absolutely no protection from the outside because we were attacked before, we're going to be attacked again. We need this protective force field around us. It's impossible to rebuild the city if you don't have walls around the city to protect what you're rebuilding. And there are no jobs, Nehemiah. There are, there's no economic system. We have no leadership. We have no direction. We have no confidence. We have no protection. There's no plan. There's no hope at all. Here's my question. What, what do you do when you see something that bothers you deeply and you don't know what to do? That's the question for this entire series. What do you do when you see something that bothers you deeply and you don't know what to do? In other words, what do you do when something grips your heart and you just can't take it anymore? What do you do? So this morning, I want to give you three thoughts about how we can begin to change our world. Now, before I do, there are some of you in here going, I can't possibly think about changing my world. I'm thinking about breathing, <gasps> coming up for air every now and then because my life feels so overwhelming. That's exactly where Satan wants you to be, in a defeatist mentality that says, I could never. But God says, with God, all things are possible, that you can rise to a level of strength and power and victory and might in the Lord. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. There is power inside of you. God wants to draw it out. So what do you do? What do you do if you want to change your world? What do you do when you see something that bothers you so deeply and you don't know how you're supposed to help? 
Nehemiah did three things at the beginning. Number one, the first thing he did was he sat down and he cried. He sat down and he cried. The first thing we see Nehemiah do is something that you're probably going to do or you've already done or you'll do again at some point in your life. You sit down and you let whatever that injustice is break your heart. You let it into the depths of you. We see this in, in verse number four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. In other words, when I heard about the devastation, when I heard about the hopelessness of my people, I sat down, I let it, I let it crush me, I let it break me, I let it all in. I wept about it. What's interesting to me is Nehemiah didn't have to do this. The guy is a thousand miles away. There was no Uber. There were no Southwest flights, right? You couldn't just get there really quickly. It, there was no roads like we have roads today. There was no highway systems. Nehemiah was a thousand miles away and he was pretty comfortable. He had a job working for the king. What the king ate, he ate. What the king drank, he drank. Whatever the king was watching on his 80-inch 4K television, that's what Nehemiah got to watch also. Nehemiah is in a good place in his life. I mean, he's he, he, uh, uh, just serving the king, hashtag blessed, right? That's probably how he was living his life. He probably felt very secure. Remember, he was of no nobility. He had no title. He had no bloodline. He was an ordinary guy living a very comfortable life. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's a play. You ever been scrolling on your phone? You ever been reading something? Maybe, maybe you, it, it, it comes to you and you're like, oh no. Well, that, that's too bad. Well, it, it sucks to be them. I mean, you know it's bad, but you think, well, what can I really do about it? Sure, because you're a Christian, you'll say a little prayer. But you don't let it get into your heart. Now, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because I'd make liars out of those of you that didn't raise your hand because we all do this. And the moment Nehemiah heard this bad news about his homeland, he had a choice. You have a choice. He could acknowledge the plight of his people. Acknowledgement's a big deal. Oh, well, that's too bad. What a, what a shame. I hate to hear that. I feel badly for them, but I'm glad my life is okay. He could acknowledge it, and acknowledgement is the first part of, of empathy. But he did more than just acknowledge it. He could let the pain in. Oh my God. I, I'm gripped with sorrow, agony, and pain for the suffering of our people, for the desolation of our homeland, for the hopelessness that people are feeling. It's, it's in the cells of their being. I am broken on their behalf. He chose to let it in. I ask you this, for Nehemiah, it was rebuilding. What is it that breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? There's something. There's something. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's your neighbors, 
And you see how far they are from God and how they're always bickering and fussing and fighting. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse. What is it that breaks your heart? What burdens you? What creates a righteous anger inside of you? This isn't right, not, not on my watch. What, what is it that stirs that up? What crushes your spirit? Maybe it's an injustice for, uh, to some group of people or a need in this world. What causes you to cry out, why doesn't somebody do something about this? I, I, I came up with a list, just some ideas, but it's not exhausted by any measure. Maybe it's children who don't know how to read or kids who have special needs. or Maybe it's those who have been bullied or people who have been neglected or abused in their life. And you're like, somebody has to do something about this. Or maybe it's for those who are bound by addiction and they're being, you know they're being held hostage to those drugs. They're being held hostage to, to the alcohol and it burdens your soul. Maybe Maybe it's for those that are trapped in the web of deception, of pornography, and you will do anything to help them get free from the snare. Maybe it's homelessness, and you see people who are stuck in, in life, and they barely have their needs met, and you really want to do something about it. Maybe it's for those who've been trafficked, um, uh, sex trafficked, or child trafficking, and, and they've been abused their whole life. Maybe it's for those who are impoverished, Around the world, they don't have clean drinking water. They don't even have a flipping mosquito net to put over their head at night. If they could just have that, they wouldn't die. Maybe it's simple antibiotics that we can get any time we want it. We probably have more leftovers in our medicine cabinet than they've had for their lifetime. What is it that burns your soul? Maybe it's you, you, you know there's this, this desire inside of you that we have got to get the good news of the Bible out in every tongue and every language across the entire globe. And it burns you. Maybe you feel called to speak on behalf of the unborn children in this world and stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. What is it? that breaks your heart. What is it that breaks your heart? I was 27 years old. We had been senior pastoring our first church for a little over a year. It was a family that moved to our little town in Iowa, and ironically, of all the places, they moved from the state of California and relocated to Iowa. Of course, I had never been to California. The family intrigued me. The mom. Sue and the son, Michael, started attending the church. Michael was a, I know he's watching today. Michael was a little ornery kid. Um, a lot of mischievousness took place through Michael. But Michael and his mom gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. His dad never came to the church much until we had a missions trip and really felt burdened wanted to be a part of that. So we went up to uh, Oconto, which is on um, the Great Lakes, and there was a campground up there, and we worked and ministered and did some things, and it was great. And he gave his heart to the Lord in time as well. Michael kind of grew up the next little bit of time and was in his teen years, early teen years, and kind of got into some trouble. He, uh, that was Michael. I remember one time he got kicked out of school 
for three days, He'd done something wrong at school, and Sue calls me and says, Pastor, you gotta take my son. You gotta do something with him. And I said, okay, Sue. Um, I didn't want to, but I loved Sue, and I wanted to help. And our church was in the middle of little church. It was in the middle of a building program. And we needed, this is child labor laws, we couldn't do this today, but we needed about 45 feet of three foot deep trench dug to be able to put some cables in. I got an idea, Sue. So I got a pick and I got a shovel and the boy was gonna spend the next three days at the church picking and digging. And I gotta tell you, I, um, uh, I, I remember he was so angry Michael was at that time. I, I remember looking out my office window and seeing him and thinking to myself, you get what you deserve. I, I was triggered too. This boy uh, was taking my time. Why can't you just behave? Can't you just do what you're told to do? And, and I was reminded in recent weeks of uh, something that happened to me. I was um, uh, in my office and looked out the window and I could see Michael working out there. And the Holy Spirit began to move upon me. And he gave me a different lens through which I was supposed to see. A lens of compassion, a, a lens of I could see through the eyes of this little boy. Uh, I wanted to do something all of a sudden. I wanted to help him change the trajectory of his life. Something was happening to me. And I remember sitting down at my office and I turned the chair around and I faced the credenza back behind my desk and I put my, the computer screen, I put my head down and I remember, um, I remember beginning to cry and just beginning to really, God, I'm so sorry for my bad attitude. And I remember the Lord at that young age speaking to me in the midst of my tears I remember him saying to me um, Troy Allen Stein you are called to do something and what you're called to do is for these young people to make sure they feel valued they feel loved and here's what he said to me you are to pull greatness out of every young person that comes in your path you were to pull greatness out of them. And I have, I'm, I'm, I'm weeping and I'm crying and I'm saying, God, I will do this. I will, I will do this. I will pull greatness. I, I will. I, um, we, uh, we, we moved a few years later away from that church. And uh, we moved to California and started our journey out here. I lost track of Michael, as you do. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the ministry, one of the responsibilities of a pastor is when you leave the church, you're to leave the relationships as well. Because how is a next pastor supposed to minister to the people if you're still continuing a relationship? I will tell you that I absolutely disagree with that rule and have bucked it many times. Um, but it's the rule nevertheless. So we moved out here and lost track, and it was a few years ago, five years ago, probably, 
that I get a Facebook message from, from Michael. He had tracked me down on Facebook. And um, he said, I need your help. Here's, here's my number. So I called him. Michael is now married with one child, I believe, at that point. And he was struggling. Um, I believe in his marriage. I was struggling in life. And I encouraged Michael, um, you know what to do. You, you know what to do. Turn your heart to God. Give your life to Jesus. Get involved in a Bible-believing church. Michael did. His family got involved in the church. And um, we kind of lost a little bit of contact for a, a, a little bit of time. But then I, it was just a few weeks ago, not that long ago, I get a message from Michael that says, um, uh, call me. That's never good when you get a message from somebody that says, call me. I thought, oh no, what happened? This was not that. Um, Michael uh, began to have a conversation with me and he said, uh, Pastor, I've been having lunch with my pastor uh, on a monthly basis. We've been going to lunch together. He's, this guy's in his 30s now. So we've been, we've been uh, having lunch together. And uh, he said, he asked me something. I said, well, what did he ask you, Michael? He said, he asked me if I would, if I would be a youth leader for the youth group. And I thought, wow. What I said, well, that's fantastic. That's not all, Pastor. Not only did he ask me if I would be a youth leader, but he said, I would like to put you in a position um, where we can bring you on as a, a youth intern. But Michael, you need to get some education, and we happen to have a Bible college just like we do that meets on our campus. And Michael, I want you to enroll in that, and we'll pay for it for you. Because Michael, I see... I see greatness in you. And Michael, I want to groom you and I want to prepare you, but we want you to be on staff full time with us as our youth pastor. And we need you to go through these hoops because we see something inside of you, Michael. And Michael was at a place in his job that he had just gotten because of the job had ended, had just lost that part, was looking for the next thing. Michael decides he's going to start his own business and go to Bible college, support his family, fulfill his dream, be called by God because somebody chose to pull greatness out of him and to believe in him. And I am so this is a picture of Michael so you can kind of get a, a, a feeling, a picture of, of what I'm doing. I hope that's going to be on the screen. Is that going to be up there for us? Yeah, right here. This, this is Michael and his family and I'm just so, it looks like Iowa, doesn't it? That's, that's exactly right. That, and this is his family and of course his second child has been born. I, I tell you the story because it's a reflection. It's a reflection of, of my heart of what took place over two decades ago. And I carry that same mandate with me in my ministry today. Every kid is important. Every kid has potential. Every kid needs greatness pulled out of them. What is it that breaks your heart? What it, it might very well be the thing that you sit down to cry about is the thing that's ticking you off right now. What is it? What is it that breaks your, your heart? You sit down and you cry. Number two, after Nehemiah sat down and he wept and he let it in, the Bible says the next thing he did was he, he knelt down and he prayed. We'll continue uh, reading the, the verse 
um, uh, verse number four. Let me start from the beginning. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Listen to me, church. If it's big enough to cry about, then it's big enough to pray about. Uh, sometimes we just say the most insulting things to God. Well, I, I guess we can pray. How insulting is that? I guess well, all we can do is pray. Are you kidding me? Well, all we can do is pray. Listen, we can pray. We can invoke the power of our mighty God on our behalf. We can see his hand move. We can see the anointing of God break the yoke of bondage. We can pray. It is the power of God made manifest for his children. We can talk to God. The veil has been torn. We have free access, divine access unto God himself. We can talk to God. We can pray. Because us plus God is always a majority. Nehemiah cries out to God. And in verse number five, then I said, this is his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of Israel. And it goes on. Nehemiah goes on and he confesses his sins. He confesses the sins of the people. You can't pray to God without being honest with God. He confesses the sins of his people. And then he reminds God of God's promises. And he acknowledges that God is faithful. Nehemiah is a praying man. In fact, in this book, if you take a survey of the book of Nehemiah, you'll see 12 different times Nehemiah prays. Now, those aren't the only 12 times that Nehemiah prayed. There are 12 examples of prayer in Nehemiah's life, which tells me in this very short book in the Bible, Nehemiah was a man who prayed probably thousands of prayers. We see it at the beginning of his story. We're going to see it at the end of his story. He goes before God. One of the great things as an aspiring leader, um, one of the great things that Nehemiah is and who he is, the essence of him, is Nehemiah is a leadership genius. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. He's a leadership genius. He's practical in what he does. He studies, he strategizes, he casts vision, he delegates. He's a leadership genius. And yet everything that he does is, is bathed in faith-filled prayer before his good and gracious God. And, and what do you do when you see a need and you don't know what to do about it? You let it into your heart. You let it in. You just let it in. You, you, you own it. You, you weep about it. And then, and then you, you pray about it. You pray about it. But that's not all. This is faith. But faith without action is dead. It's no good. In fact, it can do just the opposite. How many times has the world said of the church, you talk a good talk? Faith without works is dead. So the third thing that Nehemiah did was you stand up and act. You do something. You engage. What do you do? 
what do you do? You sit down, you cry, you kneel down, you pray, and you stand up and you act. Nehemiah gets up, picks up his briefcase, it's only got one thing in it, it's a cup. <laughs> I think that's funny. He takes, his, he takes his cup and he goes and he visits the king and his heart is very heavy. He's nervous to go talk to his boss. He's afraid to go talk to the one who's given him all of this trust in return, who speaks secretive things in front of him. He's afraid to go before the king, but he does go before the king. And it says in chapter two, verses four and five, the king said to me, what do you want? What is it you want? Then I, here he goes again, praying to God. How many of you do that? You're fixing to have a conversation that might be difficult. You've already prayed before you go in. And then they start off and they're like, what do you want? God, I'm really going to need your help here because I think I'm going to put somebody in the throat. I, I need your help, God. I really, want to, I really want to make sure that I say this the right way. I want to make sure I'm honoring to you, God. I need your help right now. Give me the words to say because I don't have the words to say. Calm my spirit. May I be focused on pleasing you and not myself. Here's what I want. We pray. What a great example. If you take nothing else, that would be a great thing to take away from this. Why don't you, why don't you just pray? Uh, pray. And, and continues. He says, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, in Judah, that's Jerusalem, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. In other words, king, my people are hurting, the walls are down, the city is exposed, and I cannot sit around here and do nothing anymore. Somebody has to do something about this. It might as well be me. In other words, I've, I've wept about it. I own it. I feel it. It's deep down inside of me. I've prayed to God that he would come through, that he would provide, that he would lead, that he would guide. And now it's my turn to stand up and do something about this. This is an injustice. This is a problem. This is a struggle. Somebody's got to do something. And if I keep saying that phrase over and over again, maybe I will finally get it in my spirit. I have to do something about this. Amen. And so Nehemiah takes the step. I don't know who this is talking to. I don't have a clue. But, but I know there's somebody listening today that something in your life is bothering you. And maybe you've been trying to keep it, whatever it is, at a distance. But now you're going to start to let it in. You're going to start to feel the pain. You're going to let it wreck you a little bit. You're going to let it burden you and overwhelm you. And then you're going to sit down and you're going to ache about it. You're going to feel it. And then you're going to pray about it. And you're going to go into your prayer closet. You're going to sit inside there. You're going to get posture yourself before God, maybe even kneel down. And you're going to invoke God's power on behalf of this situation. And then at some point, I declare to you prophetically today, God is going to give you a promise. At some point, God is going to give you the faith to stand up and to begin to act on behalf of whatever it is. I'm not a pastor, but I'm not trained, but I don't have a lot of experience. You listen to me, hear it and feel it. You don't have to be appointed by man to be called by God. God has a purpose for you. You don't have to be chosen by people. If God prompts your heart, if he stirs your spirit, if he gives you a burden, you just step into that and you trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Feel the presence of God stirring you. If it breaks you, why is it breaking your heart? Because just like Nehemiah, you're an ordinary guy. You're an ordinary girl. 
God is choosing you to step into a burden and to start a good work. Hallelujah. Nehemiah didn't finish the work alone. He didn't have to do all the work by himself, but he was the one who alone got the burden from God, that wept about it, that owned it. Oh my God, everything's that bad. Lord, you got to do something. This is terrible. And then he began to pray, intervene, God. I'm standing in the gap. Lord, we pray that you would do. And then he stood up and said, I I'm the one who's been called by God. I will take this step. I'll move the thousand miles. I'll rally the materials. I'll get the people. I'll fight the battles. But we will rebuild these walls. What do you do when you see something that bothers you deeply and you don't know what to do? You sit down and you cry. You kneel down and you pray. And you stand up and you act. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us today. Stir some people, God. Stir your church today, God. Stir us deep inside that we might do, begin to do the good work that you have prepared for us to do.